and welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies, all related to a single theme. We examine the history of the people in front of and behind the camera, try to make sense of how and why the movie was made, and then we discuss each one in way too much detail to see if they're any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my co-host and lifelong friend, Bo Ransdell, this season's theme is Monsters Are Universal, where we are taking on six remakes of classic Universal monster movies. Here at Pick 6 Movies, we believe you should never settle for a second-rate mediocre film when the option of something truly terrible is available. In that spirit, we're digging up 2017's The Mummy, starring everyone's favorite Scientologist, Tom Cruise. This movie has it all. Chills, thrills, action, adventure, fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles... Wait, that's The Princess Bride. This movie is mostly disappointment and confusion, bridged in the middle by a pretty amazing plane crash sequence. So what are we waiting for? Let's break the seal on this episode as my partner in crime, Mr. Bo Ransdell, introduces us to The Mummy. In November of 1922, Howard Carter discovered KV-62. This designation, unsexy as it might be, was cause for international excitement. KV-62 was the previously unexplored location of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, the boy king of Egypt, who came to the throne in roughly 1333 BC. He was no more than 10 at the time he assumed the role of ruler of Egypt and died about 10 years later of unknown causes, ending the Thutmoside family line and creating a legend that would endure for literally thousands of years. When Howard Carter found the tomb, it stirred the imagination of millions. How could it not? It was an honest-to-goodness lost tomb of an Egyptian king. The theory is that Tutankhamun, not a particularly successful or long-reigning king, died rather suddenly and was placed in a tomb smaller than the one normally afforded to kings and queens. As more tombs were constructed in the Valley of the Kings, stones and dust and maybe even a flood or two hid the entrance to Tutankhamun's tomb over time, and King Tut, as Steve Martin called him, just wasn't a rock star king. He was largely forgotten. Which means the tomb was remarkably well-preserved. What looting had been done was likely done only a few months after Tutankhamun was laid to rest, then restored before the sands covered the entrance for about 3,000 years. Because of this, Tutankhamun's tomb was remarkably well-preserved. His mummy, now on display in Luxor, Egypt, rests in a glass case, preserving his mummy for as long as possible. Dead before the age of 20, King Tutankhamun has become, in his own way, immortal. Not so for those who disturbed his eternal slumber, or so the story goes. Any who entered the tomb of the boy king, so the tale goes, were doomed to die a sudden and horrible death. Only, the deaths weren't so sudden and horrible, at least no more so than any deaths are. The most famous of these was the death of one of the financiers and the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert. And if that's not the name of an Earl, I don't know what is. George Herbert died suddenly about a year after the tomb was opened, and the author behind Sherlock Holmes himself, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, perpetuated the story that this was the curse of the pharaohs. 
In fact, Doyle was a longtime enthusiast of Egyptian culture, insomuch as he thought Egyptian culture was, quote, contemptible and emasculated. Basically, he was an imperialist racist who thought that Egyptian relics were spooky. So much so, he penned a couple of stories in the late 1800s about it. Lot number 249 is about a vengeful mummy, and the Ring of Toth is about an Egyptian artifact that serves as an antidote for a terrible poison. Doyle didn't really know anything about Egypt or its history, he just thought the trinkets were cool and scary. So, when his buddy, George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert, died, Doyle said, quote, It was dangerous for Lord Carnarvon to enter Tutankhamun's tomb, owing to occult and other spiritual influences. End quote. Basically, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle pulled a curse out of his ass because he thought Egypt was filled with malevolent curses and a backwards, darkly spiritual culture. See above, re being a racist asshole. A few other people died in recent temporal proximity to the opening of the tomb who were involved with the exploration, but nothing that doesn't jive with, say, how life works. In his own investigation of the so-called Curse of the Pharaohs, James the Amazing Randy said, quote, The average duration of life for those who should have suffered the ancient curse was more than 23 years after the curse was supposed to become effective. Carnarvon's daughter died in 1980, a full 57 years later. Howard Carter, who not only discovered the tomb and practically opened it, but also removed the mummy of Tutankhamun from the sarcophagus, lived until 1939, 16 years after that event. End quote. Carter himself is one of the biggest culprits, encouraging stories of the curse of the tomb to keep treasure hunters and sightseers at bay. There was a lot of valuable stuff in that tomb. If a curse could scare some looters off, so much the better, and it made for a hell of a story. Cut to 1931, and Carl Lamley Jr., like the rest of the public, was fascinated by both the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb and the story of the curse of the pharaohs that accompanied the discovery. Called Jr. around the lot, Carl Lamley Jr. was the son of, you guessed it, Carl Lamley, who founded Universal Studios. At the time of our story, Jr. was the head of production at his father's movie studio. He was there for the early days of talkies, and you'll see his name on the classic monster films of the era, movies that serve the basis for the movies we're talking about right now. In addition to Dracula and Frankenstein, Jr. guided through production classics like All Quiet on the Western Front and Imitation of Life, or even the first great haunted house film, The Old Dark House. With Dracula and Frankenstein already big hits, Jr. wanted another monster picture, one based on a book like the previous monster hits. Unfortunately, no such book about mummies existed. So story editor Richard Shire and writer Nina Putnam came up with their own based on the legend of an occultist named Cagliostro, who made himself immortal with nitrates so that he could exact revenge on women who looked like his dead wife. Side note, there was a real Cagliostro, and he was one of the all-time great swindlers in the vein of Rasputin, who was insanely popular for being a guy who was largely full of shit. Famous Satanist Aleister Crowley claimed that he was Cagliostro in a former life. Anyway, back to our mummy. So Junior liked the treatment based on the story of Cagliostro and hired John L. Balderston to write the script. Balderston had not only contributed to the scripts for Dracula and Frankenstein, he covered the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb for the New York World newspaper. 
He was uniquely suited to the task and churned out a pretty good script. It told the story of Imhotep, an Egyptian high priest buried alive for daring to attempt the resurrection of his dead lover. There's a curse and yada yada yada, the mummy escapes but doesn't roam around in bandages. Nope, he gets a job and becomes a withered-looking Boris Karloff, hires a bunch of people to find the tomb of his lover, Princess Ankh S.N. Aman, and tosses this plan aside when he meets Helen Grossvener, played by Zita Johan, an Austrian actress playing a half-Egyptian woman. Helen looks like Imhotep's old flame, and he decides instead of doing all that digging, how about just killing this woman, who bears a striking resemblance to his old girlfriend, mummifying her, resurrecting her, and living together forever as a big happy mummy couple. Naturally, the heroes of the film save both Helen and destroy the mummy, and everyone goes about their business. The film was well-received critically and financially, and spawned some unrelated sequels. There was The Mummy's Hand in 1940, The Mummy's Tomb in 1942, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, all of these involving Karis, who was, in fact, the bandage monster that liked choking people, very much unlike the Karloff film. These were what we think of when we think of mummy movies, with a slow, lumbering, desiccated corpse killing those who disturb its slumber. Hammer capitalized on these when it was ripping off, or uh, paying homage to the Universal Monsters from nearly 40 years before. Dracula himself, Christopher Lee, played Karis in the first of these, The Mummy, and more followed from Hammer Studios, including The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Shroud and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. And then, about a quarter century after that, Universal would revive the franchise with Brendan Fraser as a globe-trotting Indiana Jones type who runs afoul of an ancient curse and its magical mummy. I actually quite enjoy these movies, loose adaptations of the original material to be sure. They're a little more freewheeling and fun than the original mummy movies from Universal. But this was not the original vision. Initially, Universal wanted to make low-budget horror movies, capping the budget at about $10 million. The list of names attached to this version is remarkable. Originally, Clive Barker, of Hellraiser fame, was going to write and direct it. When Barker bailed, Joe Dante, of Gremlins and Piranha fame, was approached, with Daniel Day-Lewis attached as The Mummy. The budget was bumped up to $15 million, but this fell apart too. Then, George A. Romero gave the studio a draft of his version, which was, unsurprisingly, a bit more zombie-like. Romero, you may remember, did Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead and Dusk of the Dead and all of those movies. The studio thought Romero's version was too dark, so Mick Garris was then attached to direct, but he bounced quickly. Wes Craven got an offer, but he turned it down too. And then finally, Stephen Summers, the director of the 1994 adaptation of The Jungle Book, yeah, I don't remember that either, and the criminally underseen Deep Rising, got wind of the project and approached the producers with an 18-page treatment described as, quote, a kind of Indiana Jones or Jason and the Argonauts, with the mummy as the creature giving the hero a hard time, end quote. Universal loved the idea and bumped the budget from $15 million to a whopping $80 million, and the movie was a go. While the critical reception wasn't terribly enthusiastic, the movie made $415 million worldwide and spawned two sequels and a spinoff, all of which made money but with diminishing returns, and the franchise was eventually shelved. That is, until someone at Universal read from the Book of the Dead once more, and Universal was looking for a way to resurrect the mummy as part of their newly minted Dark Universe franchise. 
Universal wanted to reboot their stable of classic monster movies with contemporary twists. This all started with 2014's Dracula Untold, starring Luke Evans as the vampire count who sells his soul to defend his homeland and ends up turning into a bunch of CGI bats. It was poorly received and the connection to the later Dark Universe films was downplayed like that turn your uncle did in County. When Dracula fizzled, they decided, hey, why not the mummy? We made a bunch of money off those. For my money, the problem with this idea is the core motivation. Universal wanted to create a Marvel Studios-like shared universe. A dark universe, if you will, but please don't. With all its classic monsters rubbing elbows. But how do you make a shambling, bandaged corpse a hero? Good question. First, you get the last of the real action movie stars on board. One, Thomas Cruise. Tom, if you're nasty. Cruise, a proven movie star, if occasional crazy person, joined the project in 2015. Prior to that, Lynn Wiseman of the Underworld franchise and Mr. Kate Beckinsale was slated to direct. He left and Andre Muschietti was tapped as a replacement. That guy would eventually make a million billion dollars with his version of It in 2017. He left too, and Alex Kurtzman got the call. Kurtzman is notable for being half of the team of Roberto Orci and Alex Kurtzman, who wrote a lot of Michael Bay films and that Star Trek reboot. This would be only his second feature film behind the lens, which must have been daunting. I mean, you'd only ever done one small movie before, and now you have one of the world's biggest stars featuring in a movie intended to launch a whole franchise. That's some kind of pressure, right? Well, maybe not. See, Tom Cruise had a lot of legal stuff in his contract when he signed on to The Mummy. It gave him a lot, a lot of creative control. And that's before you get to the fact that, hey, this is Tom Cruise, legend of cinema. Cruise had final say on the script, the edit, even the marketing of the movie. And Cruise had some issues with the way The Mummy was being handled. For one, he felt sharing all the spotlight with the character of Aminet, you know, the mummy of the movie played by Sophia Butella, was all wrong. His character, Nick Whiteman, I mean Morton, should be the star. And why is Nick so brooding? And shouldn't he have a sexy blonde sidekick? And a dead guy he can quip with? And what about an awesome action scene on a plane? Rumor was, the script changes Cruise commissioned weren't sitting well with the executives at Universal, but hey, this is superstar Tom Cruise we're talking about here. If he wants more Nick, he gets more Nick. Also, let's whip in a little Dr. Jekyll. And rumor has it, Cruz did a bit of directing too when Kurtzman was being indecisive. Nature, and Tom Cruise apparently, abhors a vacuum. Cruz brought in his own editors, and Universal worried that their burgeoning horror franchise was becoming a Tom Cruise film and not a Dark Universe film. This is all conjecture, as most of the sources who speak about The Mummy seem to do so in hushed tones. Tom Cruise is, after all, Tom Cruise, the last of the great movie stars, the guys who could open a movie by putting their name above the title. Ahead of the release, Universal put out a photoshopped image of their Dark Universe stars. Javier Bardem as Frankenstein's monster, sans makeup, Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man, Russell Crowe as Jekyll, and Sofia Butella as Amatep. The fact that the shot was so clearly edited left it open for what the internet does best. Mockery. And then there's the trailer. Oh my god, the IMAX trailer that landed in December of 2016 with half of the sound missing. And the internet lost its damn mind. Here is a very small, soundless taste of that trailer. Ah! 
Keep in mind, those are the sounds meant to sell not just this movie, but a franchise. The endless ridicule, the head-scratching fact that it made its way to the public at all, and yes, the lingering worry that maybe this mummy was dead on arrival accompanied this trailer, with no scroll of Toth inside to raise it. The Mummy released on June 9, 2017, to near-universal <laughs> panning by critics. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times said, The mummy is trying to do so many different things, has so many different reasons for being, not to mention so many screenwriters, that a kind of narrative chaos is the all but inevitable result. Or how about Sarah Stewart of the New York Post, who said, It's hard to tell if it's Cruz or the dragging weight of the movie, but he's almost totally devoid of the star power that makes the Mission Impossible movies compulsively watchable. You can spend an afternoon reading bad reviews of this movie, rife with mummy puns, and I did. But at the end of the day, the consensus was simple. It was too concerned with making a universe and rattling off exposition that it never bothered with being a movie. Some have even suggested it marks the end of the star-driven blockbuster, especially when movies like Wonder Woman, starring mostly unknown Gal Gadot, or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, featuring actors mostly famous for being in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, ate The Mummy's lunch. After the failing box office of The Mummy, the next film on the Dark Universe slate was postponed. It would be a remake of Bride of Frankenstein, directed by Bill Condon, who notably directed the biopic of original Bride of Frankenstein director James Whale. And rumors are that pre-production ramped up again, but there's little information to be gleaned as of this recording. To paraphrase Frankenstein's monster, perhaps the Dark Universe belongs dead. But is the mummy really that bad? Doesn't the charming Tom Cruise count for something? Is the mummy's curse real, and could you, the listener, be cursed by listening to us talk about such a curse? I'm getting confused. Only one way to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, boils and ghouls. 2017's The Mummy. So that's it, folks. Here we are. We are at the halfway point of season three of Pick Six Movies. I am uh, one of the hosts, Bo Ransdell, with me as always, my lovely assistant, Chad Cooper. Hello, Bo. We have convened tonight to talk about 2017's The Mummy. Of all the Mummy movies we could have talked about, there's the Hammer version of The Mummy with Christopher Lee. Then there's the Brendan Fraser film, which was originally kind of what I thought we were going to do. And then we settled on the most recent version of The Mummy, or as it's known in Germany, Der Mummy. You noted in your intro that, you know, you enjoy the Brendan Fraser versions. I think they are what they are, but I think they're, they feel like a watered down version of Raiders of the Lost Ark and they're kind of goofy and campy which maybe that's what was intended but I'm, I'm not a huge fan of those movies I think they progressively get worse the fact that you introduce a kid in part two honestly you bring the kid in in part three <laughs> I forgot about the kid and then you kind of forget about the whole family in the third one and they're in China and there's 
Yetis or some shit like that. That all sounds new to me. I should go back and watch them. It sounds like it would be a new experience. <laughs> I think you absolutely should. But I mean, they, they are what they are. I think what, what I found more interesting about this particular film, it was the point that you brought up of how this was really meant to be the jumping off point for this dark universe. And everybody knows that, blah, blah, blah. But is the movie really so bad that it completely pumped the brakes on this grand design of this huge franchise that they were building? The answer is yes, but let's get into that in more detail. Let's start right there. As the movie opens, we get first the Universal logo and then the Dark Universe logo, letting you know that shit just got real. And... I, I'm trying to remember. I didn't go back and look because I had seen uh, Dracula Untold uh, once before, and I never need to watch that again. And But I don't remember if they had the Dark Universe logo in front of that, but that was the jumping off point. That In theory, that was going to be the first movie, the relaunching of the Dracula character. But that movie, it turns out, was stinky. So we get the Dark Universe logo to let everyone know, that's right, everyone, this is a thing. As with all good movies, we start with a flashback in this case it is england in the year of our lord 1127 the crusaders uh who as you probably remember chad are upstanding individuals who in no way were trying to bring about the genocide of a people due to religious leanings are burying this dude with this special gem and it looks like kind of a, an overly dark version of indiana jones and the last crusade which only made me think of the brendan fraser mummy again and maybe dislike this movie more. <laughs> yeah, it's a little red stone. It's just like, hey, here's this thing. It's it's basically the gem from the Monster Squad, only a little bit smaller. But it also kind of serves the same purpose at any rate. But then we're done with that flashback. Let's flash forward. So now we get to present day England and we have the Mole Man's machine that he uses to attack Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, bust through a wall, we discover this tomb where we just buried this stone with a uh, crusader dude. Dr. Jekyll, even though they don't call him Dr. Jekyll right off the bat because we got to keep that little secret in our back pocket for no good reason. But Dr. Jekyll comes into frame and tells all the workers to fuck off. He's like, get out of here, everybody, before I go cock me on everyone. Who the hell is this guy? Could you just barge in and demand people leave a dig site like this? Wouldn't you at the very least need a clipboard or like a badge around your neck he just rolls in in a suit and he's like beat it shitheads i'm in charge that is one of the big questions i have about dr jekyll in this whole dark universe setting is that he is a, essentially the samuel jackson of the dark universe he, he's the guy that shows up and is like hey guess what we're gonna form a, a team of super monsters and you're on the ticket pal uh, or whatever but the problem is that he, there's no way to get a handle on what this character is is he some super writ super scientist that's got a bunch of money and and, and if so why doesn't everyone know who he is because that doesn't seem to be the case once he shows up and he's like beat it shitheads i'm in charge and everyone let's have another flashback because now Henry gives us the backstory of Princess Amanet, who's from Egypt. He starts by saying, the past can't be buried forever. Then we get this flashback of Princess Amanet. She was going to inherit the throne of Egypt. She's this beautiful, cunning, and ruthless character because as the sole heir, you know, she's going to inherit everything. Turns out Pharaoh's dipping his reed in another inkwell and he ends up having a son. He's going to get Amanet's inheritance because let's be honest, it's a man's world, right? <laughs> 
yet, even back then. <laughs> it's just like, oh man, this is terrible. What? This baby gets everything? Yeah. This is bullshit. So what would any rational, cunning, ruthless individual do, such as Aminette? You would seek revenge and embrace evil by soliciting the help of the God of Death. So she makes this pact with the God of Death set. She gets a fancy knife. But on the end of that knife is the redstone from our Knights Templar earlier. So basically, she's got this voodoo dagger knife with the redstone on the end of it. And all of this is starting to come together. And she now has two irises and pupils in each eye. I don't know what she sees. It's like an ant. And then she also gets pillow booked, which if you've never seen that movie, that's the one where you get to see Ewan McGregor's ding ding. And he writes a bunch of words on a, a, a pretty lady. Uh, when she gets naked. What was that movie? Th- the Pillow Book. Ewan McGregor's Ding Ding. Pillow Book. Yeah. Are you sure that isn't Christopher Robin? I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. Does he show his dick in that movie too? I can only hope that Ewan McGregor shows his cock in Christopher Robin. Oh, bother. Right. He's just like, hey, Eeyore, you ever seen one of these before? <laughs> imagine if christopher robin just grew up to be a deviant yeah he just walks around with a, a honey pot on his dick mm, honey <laughs> let's get back to our terribly disturbing other movie after Aminette gets pillow booked uh which is a verb that everyone should use more often than they do she kills the baby what was gonna take her place then because that's a terrible thing to do even by ancient egyptian standards she ends up getting mummified alive which to me doesn't mean she got mummified she got wrapped in bandages and thrown in a sarcophagus because mummified is when they like take out all your entrails and put a bunch of sawdust and sage and and shit in your body and pull your brain out through your nose with a hook all the stuff that when you were in fifth grade you were like that sounds rocking but before she's mummified she hooks up with some dude and she's on top of him and she's gonna stab him with the magical redstone dagger and let him become the vessel for the god of death and then all kinds of bad stuff's gonna happen but but what that is my question throughout this movie i'll tell you what happens grown men in diapers show up with blow darts shoot her in the neck knock her out wrap her in bandages and then dunk her in mercury that's right but at no point in this movie is anyone like so what if we let set come back and they're like no that's bad okay but why is that bad well it's just because he's the god of death Uh uh-huh and then what people die all the time is he gonna kill those people is he gonna kill other people is he gonna bring back a bunch of corpses is it a night of the living dead situation does he just kill everybody but him and ominent and they just fuck on a pile of corpses for eternity what is the repercussions of set coming back and it's never really said open credits the mummy that's what happens <laughs> well and then they also let us know hey not only did we bury her in mercury they took her out of egypt in fact and struck her name from the history books because she was such a shitty person so i assume in the history books when they got to the part about the current pharaoh having a baby they just did the papyrus version of whiteout where they were like nope no baby <laughs> So before the movie's title sequence, let's just recap. We had a flashback to the Knights Templar. Right. Then we flashed forward to present day London. Right. Then we flashed back to get the setup of the story of the film. I don't even know when the hell this movie's taking place. I don't understand why this movie didn't just start in Egypt, show the story of our mummy, then get the Knights Templar, and then move into present day. Or kind of fuck the whole scene with the Knights Templar, do the opening with Aminette, killing the kid, and you have Jekyll narrate it all. 
Paul. And then you go straight from that to the desert with Nick because you don't need the discovery of the Knights Templar tomb at this point. You can do that once you get her on the way back to England. After all this flash forward and flashback, we get a shot of some ruins in this wasteland. And on the screen, the title comes up and it says Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization, which I was like, what the hell does that mean? Is that just like the, I don't know, like the local chamber of commerce slogan, you know, Mesopotamia. We're not one of those shithole countries because we're a geographic region. Well, but then they're like, just kidding. It's Iraq. We are introduced now that we're in Mesopotamia to Nick Morton, our hero question mark of this film. When we first meet him, he's in the desert and he's wearing what I would call, it's like, it's the opposite of camouflage. <laughs> conspicuous flage he's wearing a red headdress and he's spying on these insurgents as they're called and he's there again yeah with like his partner or his sidekick or i don't know what the word you'd call it maybe his who cares right or mysterious stranger because we don't know it's nick yet he holds a note that says jennifer investigate this site and then there's some some coordinates and it's signed henry but the editing is so fast that if you're not paying attention you don't catch all that it's very very quick the information we don't need, like all this Templar bullshit, takes forever. And the information we do need, like, hey, why is he here again, is gone in a flash. And it's only until after the action scene that we understand, oh, that's why he's here. Which seems like a mistake, in my opinion. We meet Nick, who, like so many heroes in movies, is a colossal asshole. Because he goes over and cuts the water pouch of his partner, Vale, to ensure that Vale will follow him down to this campsite to steal some ruins because in this scenario Vale will die without water because he is a human being and needs water to live right it, Nick is an asshole it's a real dick move where the hero of our movie again ladies and gentlemen basically forces his partner to help him rob a grave that is currently surrounded by insurgent soldiers who are going to murder them on site in theory and to force him to do this he throws threatens him with dehydration and death you know like a hero does <laughs> the next scene these two idiots are running around in this like comical action adventure style fun and it's this it's a real hollywood action sequence and i say that with as much insincere praise as possible they're just like shooting their guns and they're chunking grenades and then Vale calls in an airstrike to save them which who the hell does he call at this point who knows are they in the army like that's one of my big questions at, at this point in the film like yes it turns out that they're in the army but not so you notice again we have no idea why the fuck they're there aside from this brief glimpse at a map it's like you know basically nick morton says he's a thief or well his partner says hey you're a thief and he says no 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 we're here to liberate these precious artifacts from this country uh aka steal them then they're talking about calling in airstrikes and it's like well then why would you do that because if you're trying to get this treasure then why would you want to bomb it why wouldn't you just wait a little bit like wait to see if these guys leave it's head scratching from this point because their purpose here is so ambiguous all through this action scene like i i couldn't concentrate on them shooting at people or calling in airstrikes or whatever because the entire time i was like what the fuck are they doing here 
again. The airstrike comes in and blows up all the bad guys. With the precision of a Navy SEAL sniper, our heroes emerge unharmed and all the other bad guys just run away in fear because they're chickens. <laughs> right. Yeah, what a bunch of babies. <laughs> Nick and, and Vale, they don't have time to celebrate because the building that they're on collapses under them and then punctures a hole in the ground, revealing a tomb where at this point, everyone's guessing we're about to find a mummy. And if you had not had the title sequence that said this movie was called The Mummy and we changed Nick's name to Nathan, could this movie be the best film adaptation of the PlayStation video game series Uncharted that we will never see? No, because that film already exists and it stars Nathan Fillion. They did a YouTube short film with Nathan Fillion playing Nathan Drake and it was awesome. Was it better than this? Oh, God, yeah. It was actually charming and the character was likable. <laughs> it's hard to say because uh, there are plenty of movies. I, we're going to, I don't want to draw you into my personal hell, Chad. I'm going to say a lot of shitty things about Tom Cruise over the course of this discussion, but I, I want to preface all that with there are plenty of movies that I like Tom Cruise a lot. Are they the movies where he plays an asshole? Right. This is a, a theory of yours that perhaps we should just go ahead and explore for a moment. All right. Let me go ahead and just put this on the table. When Tom Cruise plays an unlikable character, I love him. When he plays a theoretical likable character, I hate him. Case in point, Rain Man. He's an asshole. And I love him in that. In Magnolia, he plays an asshole. Yeah, his best performance, yes. And he's fantastic in that. Anytime he plays a character that is just deplorable, then he's absolutely fantastic. In Tropic Thunder, he plays a character that is terrible, but is is absolutely fantastic. But you put him in Cocktail, Top Gun, where he's throwing around that toothy grin and I'm supposed to love him? Nope. You can keep that. Yeah, he's good in color of money, too. He's a real jerk in that. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that that theory is sound. I think it holds water. T to reemphasize the fact that this is our hero, Courtney B. Vance shows up as his superior, question mark, and finally tells us, like, oh, yeah, these guys are what he calls long-range reconnaissance, which means they run across the desert looking for enemies and, I guess, enemy enclaves and that kind of thing. Tom Cruise immediately lies to his superior and says no 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 we caught wind of some enemy insurgents or something or the other and didn't have time to radio you guys this had nothing to do with treasure at all it's a real well sir uh we were going to this bingo parlor <laughs> at the ymca and one thing led to another and the under and the instructions got all fouled up and <laughs> Right. If John Candy had been alive, he could have delivered this uh, speech a lot better. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened, sir. And instead, Courtney B. Vance is like, that sounds like a lot of bullshit, which immediately gave me more respect for both Courtney B. Vance as an actor and this character <laughs> as a person. Because he's like, that's that's a load of horse shit. What it sounds like to me is you were trying to steal some shit, got into some trouble, and had to call us at the last minute because you were going to be killed. But they're not doing this as part of their job. They are soldiers that are out there just stealing shit, selling it on the black market, making them bad guys. At best, maybe at worst, what they're war profiteers. They're certainly douchebags. Yeah, they are, they are stealing cultural artifacts. In theory, you could argue that when we see the insurgents 
sequence at the beginning uh, of this sequence, they're just shooting statues. They're just like, eh, fuck you, Art, and shooting machine guns at these old statues. You can't tell me there wasn't part of you that was like, I wish I could shoot up a statue with a machine gun. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the same part of me that's like, I wish I could fire a tank at something. You know, like if you had one of them junkyard stacks of cars to put them in the crusher or whatever, and somebody said, hey, there's a tank right here with exactly one shell in it. You want to try to blow up that stack of old cars? And then I would say, here's here's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need an ice cold Coors Light and an American flag t-shirt. And then the answer is yes. If you got it on hand, a Bible. And I'm going to need some kind of gun and or semi-automatic weapon because after I blow up said stack of cars, I'm going to need to shoot a gun into the air. And uh, if it's not too much trouble, could you get me a, a, a copy of Hustler? Preferably 1982, 1985. I've got my tastes. The kind that uh, you're going to see a little pee in the middle. Not the whole thing. It ain't Penthouse. You remember that? That for a while in the 80s, just Penthouse was like, you know what people like? Girls peeing. What the hell was that all about? I got questions. You just need to go ask the right people to get those answers. Yeah, my dad's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so after Courtney B. Vance gives them the business, out of nowhere comes the pretty blonde lady of the movie, who A, should not be traveling with the military. She has absolutely no jurisdiction or reason to be here, other than she fucked Tom Cruise and is like, hey, I got a bone to pick with you, mister. Yeah, fuck me and stole some shit from me. And I told Courtney B. Vance about it, and he had the poor judgment to bring me with him. When Jenny shows up and she sees Nick, the first thing she does is she slaps him in the face and she says, where is it? And she's looking for the map that Nick was holding earlier, the one that had her name on it and was signed by Henry and the coordinates. Jenny and Nick have this back and forth in front of Vale and Colonel Greenway, and it's here that Jenny details that Nick stole the map after the two of them had had sex and that Nick was capable of having sex only for a very short period of time. And she says 15 seconds, which Nick refutes that and says it was a very long time and it was a very satisfying evening. And I'm not sure that these two descriptions are mutually exclusive because look, let me, let me just pause for a moment. Premature ejaculation is a very serious condition. And for men suffering from this condition, they should speak to their urologist or other medical professional. There is help available. You just need to ask. I wish I could remember the comedian that I should credit here, but the line uh, that I always use when talking about premature ejaculation is, I don't know about you, Chad, but every orgasm I've had was right on time. The line I always use about premature ejaculation is, sorry. Yeah, I'll go down on you later. (laughs) It'll all work out. Just flush it out. We'll take care of business. Chitty goes over and sees this gaping hole in the ground. It turns out that they are a thousand miles away from Egypt, but they've stumbled across this Egyptian tomb. For me, it was like when you see a Whataburger in Florida. Sure, they're everywhere in Texas, but in Florida, hey, there's a Whataburger. I'm in Mesopotamia. What? There's an Egyptian tomb here? Shouldn't that be like a thousand miles away? This is crazy. We should sell tickets. Either way, I'm getting a cheeseburger. Chitty's played by Annabelle Wallace, um, which, what you talking about, Wallace? Um, In this movie... She looks so much like Ann Coulter that I found it distracting. It made me like her character less just because I kept expecting her to make remarks to defend indefensible human behavior or float some outrageous socio-political point of view that is only meant to solicit outrage, you know, rather than actually make an intellectual point. I just, I hated her because of the way she looked. And it's not her fault. She's lovely, but she looks a lot like Ann Coulter. You're not wrong. And I hadn't, I hadn't made that association. I thought more, uh, 
of Laura Lenny. But now that I think about it, Laura Lenny kind of looks like Ann Coulter, and that's a real problem for me. <laughs> I have I have a weird fascination with Laura Lenny, especially from the You Can Count On Me era, uh, where I think she is absolutely lovely, and everyone else, <laughs> everyone else that I talk to, and, and I reveal my uh, Laura Lenny fixation. They're like, you don't think she's a little cold? I'm like, I think that's my type. I, I think I, I think I want a woman who's unattainable. I'm sure I'll edit this out later, but you know, our friend, uh, I believe, also has a real thing for Laura Lenny. And as I brought up over and over again, like, what about this awful character that she played and this awful character? And just, he was like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> right. And right. I was just like, hmm. She seems like she might be kind of a bad person. And I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so uh what happens next chad is another inexplicable moment in this movie where you kind of wonder if no one read the script after they reached a final draft of it because what happens is courtney b vance says hey pretty blonde lady you can go down into this hole to investigate the tomb and hey tom cruise you can go down in the hole with her and tom cruise is like what me Hey, why do I have to go? Why do I have to go down there? It's like, motherfucker, that's the whole reason you're here. That's a Tom Cruise is as big as a movie star can get. And I get that that's why he's in this. But in watching this movie, it just felt like he was clearly 15 to 20 years too old. I mean, even in military rank, it's like, how old are you? He's the bad boy, Chad. He keeps getting busted down in rank. He's not the bad boy. He's the old man. Right. Like his partner in this is what? Late 20s, early 30s. He looks like if you took a tom cruise action figure and trained a magnifying glass on it for a few seconds so that it slightly melted just the effects of age like i again i don't want to badmouth him too much because he's just getting old that's just what happens you know you get a little softer around the middle and your, your face starts to droop a little bit and your nose goes bad and you can't remember things anymore like why you shouldn't be in movies like this these three idiots rappel down into the hole it turns out it's a tomb where there's mercury dripping from the stalactites which stalactites hold on tight so they don't fall down and stalagmites push up with all their might to come up from the ground that's how you can remember which one's which it's entertainment jenny realizes that there is a canal system in this chamber and they decide that they're going to bring in some heavy-duty lighting that is suitable for motion picture illumination. Jenny starts to give away way too much descriptive detail as to what we're seeing while Nick and uh, his partner Vale sneak around looking for shit to steal and sell later on. And again, they are actually bad guys. I don't mean that they're the bad guys in the movie. They're actually the heroes in the movies. But they're just, they're horrible people. And I just want to say, you cast a less handsome actor in this role with bad teeth and a jacked up face. And this is a decidedly different interpretation for this character by the audience. You put Steve Buscemi in this role, you have a totally different movie and arguably a much better movie than what you have with Tom Cruise in the lead role. The movie I want to see is this character played by god rest his soul alan rickman from the Die Hard era i was just like yes here we are robbing ancient antiquity yes the sarcophagus will be mine 
I will get into it. That's the movie I want to see. I want to see him as an anti-hero. And that's the problem this movie has is it doesn't understand or it, it can't decide if Tom Cruise is supposed to be kind of a villain who becomes a hero or if he's always a hero. Instead, it just comes across as this big muddled mess. The, the culmination of this scene after after Laura Lenny, I wish, <laughs> gives us all the exposition about, oh, you know, look, all the statues are facing inward instead of out. Somebody wanted to keep something here you know there are all these curses and whatnot doesn't this feel like uncharted the video game yes like everything about this just like i should be looking at the hud on the screen because nicks he figures out you gotta shoot one of these cables to lower a counter rate that raises the sarcophagus and it's just the whole thing is it's just very video gamey to me and that's overstating it's not like nick figures it out he just has a hunch and starts shooting shit (laughs) and it works out in his favor spiders show up everywhere and again they just start blasting away because not real spiders camel spiders they're actually uh like lobsters where they're arthropods instead of arachnids i don't need all your book learning this spider's a spider (laughs) give me a machine gun and i'm gonna shoot it okay because who among us has never tried to kill a bug with a high powered assault rifle Vale gets bit. Nobody else does because maybe he was shooting the spiders with his machine gun and they said we are going to teach you a lesson mr chomp then Nick Morton, a.k.a. Tom Cruise in this movie, has a vision of Aminet. And this is a quibble that only anyone who has dabbled in the world of Photoshop would have a problem with. But the fact that they're using papyrus font for the subtitles feels a little on the nosy to me in a way that really bothered me throughout the film. Oh, they're, they're mummies from Egypt. What other font would you use? <laughs> Right. You know what? I'll take a little Ariel Sands here. I don't need you to like, oh, yes, what font would work for the mummy? Oh, I know. Papyrus. You know what? Just go fuck yourself. Almanette approaches Nick in this dream sequence when he's sort of out of body in this very seductive way. And she gets her lips close to his and she tells him via a papyrus font-based closed captioning, You have set me free, my chosen. Then Almanette kisses Nick, which I questioned what would have happened if Jenny had shot the cable? Would she have been the one in the dream sequence kissing on our sexy mummy? Oh, that's a much better movie already. <laughs> Let me pose another question to you. What if Steve Buscemi had freed her? Because, you know, he would have been in that dream sequence full on. Hey, what the fuck? I'm going to get laid by this Egyptian broad. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Can we take uh, 10 minutes from this movie? I uh, think I'm going to get it well with this Egyptian lady. Check it out. She's got double eyes. This is amazing. <laughs> Egyptian pride. You can call me Chet. Just remember, Chet. Then he, and then he just pulls out a big red stick of lipstick, smears it on his face, scratches Aminette off the list of names of people he's going to assassinate, and then we move on. I'll tell you what we got to do. We got to fucking kill this bride. Now that I'm thinking about it, like Steve Buscemi, not only does he make every movie better, in particular, he would make this movie about 20 times better. Because every asshole thing you did you would see it as sort of heroic in terms of, in relation to it being Steve Buscemi doing it. Could you imagine Universal Studios saying, we are creating a dark universe that will be like, (laughs) that will be like the Marvel universe featuring our most iconic characters and to lead off this flagship film to be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the cornerstone in this this series of films will be The Mummy, starring Steve Buscemi. What are you fucking assholes looking at? <laughs> hey, 
What are you doing wearing nothing but bandages? Put some on for Christ's sake. It would be amazing. I would love that. I know. It'd be so. I typically, whenever I push comes to shove, I replace actors with first, I always envision Nick Nolte in that role, or I envision Steve Buscemi. And one of those two can replace everything. Ah, Christ. Look at this fucking mummy. Somebody give me a drink. My third choice is Gary Busey. You put one of those three in there, you got a winner. I'll tell you what. Here's what I want out of this movie I want Buscemi as the mummy, Nick Nolte as the Nick character. And then Gary Busey as the sidekick. And and you got yourself a, a five-star film. Without a doubt. How do they not make movies like that? Do they not realize how just incredible that would be and let them just just ad lib the dialogue make shit up this is all gonna be cgi'd up on the back end anyway make gary Busey's teeth smaller make nick nolte less of an alcoholic whatever you gotta do think about what you just said if 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 i came to you and i said hey bo they're doing a remake of the mummy and then your eyes roll and i'm like no 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 wait it's gonna star nick nolte <laughs> steve Buscemi, and gary Busey. you don't even need to know what roles they're gonna be and where's my tent there's a movie theater somewhere I need to be camping out in front of. Right. It's going to be directed by Neil Breen. <laughs> and he's going to have a budget unheard of by modern standards. He's going to be given $200 million to make a mummy movie with these actors. And, and they have acknowledged and, in fact, touted the fact that there will be no shooting script. I'd go see that. I'd be in line right now. They they pull this sarcophagus out, out of the mercury after Steve Buscemi has a vision of Aminat. And this is the scene from the IMAX trailer that there's a clip of in the intro. And... I got to tell you, here, here's the thing. This is a legit good action sequence, what we're coming to. But seeing that trailer, because I remember when that trailer landed and, and people losing their minds about it. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen come out of a, you know, quote, professional movie studio in my life. It is so head scratching that at no point did someone just say, hey, what trailer are we putting out tomorrow? Did anyone watch it again? No, it's fine. Okay, let it go. Well, before before that scene once once they've raised up the sarcophagus the military takes it out with a helicopter and then they fly it through the air which i don't know why they didn't put it on a truck and then that's where they put it into a military transport plane right then it, the train goes on then the plane goes on a train which goes on a ship which is inside of a zeppelin <laughs> right yeah this is the scene that you introduced in the opening which i gotta tell you because i don't pay attention to stuff generally i had no idea that this happened i didn't see where the internet freaked the fuck out and after listening to your intro i went and looked at it and i was like huh that must have been terribly embarrassing for someone somebody got fired for sure over that not before the rest of the internet was like oh my god did you see this mummy trailer this thing looks like a real piece of shit even though the scene itself is genuinely good so let's talk about that so we've got the sarcophagus on this military transport plane and here we see Vale who got bit by a spider earlier he starts getting spider veins on his neck either from the spider bite or you know maybe it's just the passage of time because you know what <laughs> our bodies age differently and maybe these little spider veins on his neck are just a subtle reminder when he looks in the mirror that he's not the young man he once was and that he should learn to let his regrets go and live a life just being fully present and self-aware and that the joys of life are there every day for him to enjoy yeah and eventually there will be a heat death in the universe and none of it will matter so <laughs> sleep tight <laughs> i got a couple of questions here 
before we get into the part that's good. So Nick, his pal, and the lady are all on this plane. How come? There is no reason that they, particularly Nick and his friend, if they're long-range reconnaissance, unless they're on their way back to the States to be court-martialed, there is no reason for them to be on this plane. Well, I think the reason that Nick is on the plane is because Ginny's there, and the two of them have a conversation where Nick, rightfully so, confronts her about why she said that he was only able to have sex for 15 seconds. Because look, again, premature ejaculation is a real condition, and it's not something to be ashamed of. Help is available. Pick up the phone, make that call. You'll be glad that you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, operators are standing by. Whoops. Was that the sound of ejaculate? It was something. I've only made that sound <laughs> once uh, when ejaculating, and that was after quite the marathon. <laughs> it was it, it was what I referred to as my penis queef. That was after all-you-can-eat enchiladas down at Los Burritos Diablos. <laughs> you know, one thing I've never done, to the best of my memory, is farted at the point of orgasm. And I feel like it's something that is just bound to happen someday, you know? I thought you were going to say, one thing I've never done is have... Have sex after an all-you-can-eat buffet of enchiladas. Because if you had done that, you wouldn't have made the prior statement. <laughs> Fair enough. Jenny changes the subject with Nick because she's a normal human being that strikes an unsettling resemblance to an 80-pound female provocateur of conservative political poison. Um, or Jenny says to Nick that she's all pissed off because he was going to steal her life's work to make a quick buck and that he's a selfish asshole. And then in the background, we see Vale with his spider vein neck. He kind of dies because I think he dies because his eyes roll back in his head. And then Jenny puts on her glasses and she turns into her super smart exposition mode and she examines the the sarcophagus and she's talking out loud and she gives all of these details of the initial flashback in Egypt so that Nick can be brought up to speed on Amonet's backstory as well as any theater goers that were late because they couldn't find a parking spot or just wandered into the wrong theater. You know what? Get your shit together movie going audience. Have some respect for your fellow movie goers and more to the point, have some respect for yourself. You spent the money, show up. You don't need to have characters explaining the first 20 minutes of the movie because you were too late lazy and stupid to get there on time what she should have done is pull a muppet movie and just hand the script to dr heath and the electric mayhem <laughs> so they can catch themselves up this is a narrative of heavy duty proportions <laughs> so vale vale is now a full-on zombie and um he walks over and just starts cutting the straps on the sarcophagus that's holding it into place colonel greenway who again for some reason is also on this military transport plane he yells at Vale and asks him what he's doing, which is a reasonable question under the circumstances. Vale responds by stabbing Colonel Greenway with his knife. And everyone else on the plane is rightfully alarmed at this turn of events. Right. Let the knife do the talking. That's what I say. Two nameless soldiers pull their guns on Vale. And then Nick, in this some sort of Jason Bourne way, disarms one of them. And so he has a gun now. And uh, he is between his friend Vale, who has a blood-covered knife in, in one hand. and who's He's also stabbed one of the other soldiers and then Vale swipes his knife at Nick so Nick shoots Vale but this only slows Vale down so Nick shoots Vale a second time so Vale goes down and also Ginny says this is a pressurized plane and seeing as she is full of exposition this is going to be important later on is it I mean in terms of yes uh, an airplane does what an airplane does when birds fly through the window but shooting seems to have no effect on this scene all that happens is they they see that one of the engines is going out and they're like what the 
And then Tom Cruise, again, uninvited. Why anyone allows him to just wander around in this is bothersome to me, to say the least. But then he just goes up to the cabin and is like, hey, my boss just got stabbed to death back there. This seems real fucked up. What's going on up here? And sure enough, it's a bunch of birds, uh, which we saw earlier in the movie when they pulled the sarcophagus out, that a bunch of ravens are, are hanging out around the sarcophagus and whatnot. The birds fly through the windshield and I guess kill the pilots, which is an interesting way to go if you're a, an air, airline pilot, even w- working for the military. I assume that... I think what you mean to say is that a murder of crows committed murder by crow. <laughs> oh, how delightful. <laughs> oh, Jessica Fletcher, you've done it again. The pilots end up dead because a bunch of birds fly through, and then the plane's going down because birds keep piling in or something and, and blowing up all the engines and whatnot. But they also, the plane is going to crash over merry old England. <laughs> right. Because, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, at some point, I can't even remember who it is at this point. Somebody's like, we're over London. And it's like, okay, whatever. Uh, you know, we we could just get that information once we crash, I suppose. But also, why were you flying to London? Where were you headed? It doesn't matter. The plane's going down, and this is the action sequence that's kind of cool. And they actually shot this in what's called, I think, the Vomit Comet, the mm-hmm. airplane that goes straight up and then comes straight down. And everyone's weightless. And it's Tom Cruise putting the parachute on... On Laura Lenny tossing her out the plane and then he is just going down with the ship like everyone else is either dead or has fl- been been sucked out the plane we see it, again kind of a cool shot of him in the doorway of this plane watching this movie if you've never seen this movie this scene of them on the plane and it crashing and there is a shot of Tom Cruise laying against an open door as the plane is plummeting towards earth it is true the thing of nightmares i have very rarely seen a movie especially a movie that i didn't see in the theater that gave me a physical response to watching it and i don't know if it was just vertigo it is an amazing shot of watching this plane head towards impending doom and it was the only memorable scene of this movie the first time i watched it i will forever remember that and for the filmmakers of it Hats off to you. It is done incredibly well. Yes, it is the best moment in the movie after seeing it a couple of times, this movie a couple of times now, 100%. There, There is nothing else even close as far as something that lingers about this movie other than the bitter taste of defeat. I was going to um, say the stench of how shitty it is, but... The lady for Laura Lenny, for no good reason, is asked to help ID the bodies of people she just met on this plane. I... Uh. <laughs> Nick wakes up in the morgue or whatever with a toe tag on. Hooray! Our hero isn't dead. Right. <laughs> For, unfortunately, you know, this movie at that point, I was like, man, we're in and out of this thing pretty quick. Well done, the mummy. But instead, I Nick wakes up and his pal is there and in a scene in no way reminiscent of an American werewolf in London. At this point, Vale should just be saying, David, you've got to kill yourself. Yeah, they should have. It would have been just so, it would have been so on the nose. Like, you know what? If you're going to do that, then just do it. I, a hundred percent. If you're going to rip off an American werewolf in London, don't fuck around with it. Have him be the, the funny character, you know, the Griffin Dunn character. Just cast Griffin Dunn in the role right. <laughs> and call it a day. I mean, he's at least age appropriate to hanging out with Tom Cruise. <laughs> 
much more so than this guy. Griffin Dunn, a- a.k.a. Vale, is like, hey, uh, you can't die. She has plans for you, and there's things worse than death or some shit. And then he disappears because the lady, Laura Lenny, shows up and is like, hey, you're alive. And he's like, oh, you saw my pee-pee, and hides behind a table. And Well, he's naked in a morgue, and as soon as she walks in, he bends over, and he hides his penis from them because I'm guessing that he has a teeny weeny peeny. And again... In all seriousness, micropenis is a real condition, and it affects literally a certain number of men everywhere. (laughs) But there is help. If you or someone that you've seen naked in a morgue suffers from micropenis, please reach out to a leading medical professional for a consultation to understand your options. Help is available. <laughs> right. Call 1-800-GROWER-NOT-A-SHOWER. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> if I had the kind of money to have a racehorse, that would be my dumb name for my racehorse. Grower, not a shower. Coming down the stretch, growing not a shower. Growing not a shower by a head. So now some British officials and police officer types, they're examining the wreckage of this plane as they arguably should be doing. And they come across the sarcophagus, which is covered by a bunch of crows and or ravens or blackbirds. And inside they find the mummy of Amanet. And then both of the officers get killed by the mummy and they have their life sucked out of their bodies. And then she starts coming back to life and she makes the corpses of the two dead officers follow her as she kind of crawls away. So she's getting a little, you know, she's getting an entourage. I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, but it's a personal favorite uh, schlocky movie of mine. But we, we come off ripping off an American werewolf in London and immediately start ripping off the movie Life Force, which is exactly what Aminette does to these dudes. She life forces them where she sucks out their life force and then they become kind of life force zombies which uh reminded me again hey i wish i was watching life force but that actually runs through my head about once every 48 hours so it's not that i haven't seen that movie but i saw starman is it anything like starman it's been a while (laughs) since i've seen starman remind me does captain picard share a kiss with a space vampire no it's nothing like starman oh that's a shame because that (laughs) In our next scene, Jenny and Nick are in this bar drinking. And then Nick sees uh, Veil as this ghostly figure in the bar. And then here, Jenny does what she does best and explains to Nick what the red stone we saw at the very, very, very beginning of the movie that was buried with the knight to keep it safe from the other dagger because you can't put the two together, bad things happen. Jenny tells him that because if you put the dagger and the stone together, you're going to create some sort of mojo that will bring this death demon back to life and turn into human form. So you don't want to cross the stream and make sure that you keep things separate and he's just like yeah yeah yeah, whatever whatever and he keeps looking over and seeing his ghostly dead friend across the way there's a a scene in the bathroom where they're chit-chatting and it's more of the ominous you know she's coming for you nick uh she has plans for you kind of shit nick ends up going outside and sees a bunch of rats coming after him along with ominous and then the rats swarm all over him and then it turns out it was a dream all along what <laughs> right and but he was in the middle of the street and uh laura lenny pulls i gotta stop calling her laura lenny let's compromise laura jenny jenny lenny how about that <laughs> jenny lenny then pulls him out of the street is like hey weren't you listening to me dumb dumb there's all kinds of important stuff that these hieroglyphics uh were telling us and this is one of my favorite moments in the movie in terms of did no one read this a second time just wrote it and filmed it okay fair enough at this point nick says listen lady i don't need your archaeological 
mythological mumbo jumbo and hieroglyphics and and shit and it's like wait a second when have when has the term hieroglyphics ever been archaeological jargon since the age of i don't know say 11 i knew what hieroglyphics were because (laughs) i took basic history where they teach you all about this shit this is not jargon exclusive to the field of archaeology it's just shit you kind of know i'm looking at my notes here and and as i'm reading them i'm like this doesn't make any sense and i'm like oh yeah yeah that's right these are the notes from the mummy right nick convinces jenny to go find the sarcophagus right says he knows where it is he's got mummy esp or mespy and we're we're back at the crash site and Aminette is now sucking the life out of ambulance workers to get some more life in her just like you saw in the movie starman right and getting kind of sexy now like the more that she life forces people the the more she becomes starman's people starman's right. people sorry uh my apologies to starman well she starts to look like you know sophia butella who is a pretty lady and so she looks like a pretty lady with a little bit of like cgi rotting around the cheek and nose she looks like a pretty lady who's been smoking since age six and is on one of those commercials where it's like, I was smoking since I was in kindergarten. Look at the holes in my face. (laughs) Don't be like me. (laughs) You're lovely. Except for those gaping wounds across your jawline. Just get used to it. I have a lot to offer. I'm still quite young. I don't know that you could keep up with me in the sack. <laughs> yeah. This, this is getting uncomfortable because you're really attractive. Thank you. I think you're quite hot too. Stud. <laughs> your chain smoking mummy impression sounds a lot like your Nick Nolte impression. <laughs> I don't think they're that different. You know, it's not just the impression. I mean, just in terms of the spectrum of voices. Ah, uh, Christ, Reggie. I would like to see your chain-smoking sexy mummy have sex with your Nick Nolte character. <laughs> I, I'm about to blow it. Nah, give it to me, big boy. <laughs> it's all one and the same. <laughs> ah, oh, I'm about to pop my load. Nah, imagine our children. <laughs> You're everything I dreamed of. Not nah, harder. Not harder. Not harder. (laughs) After she gets sexy, Nick uh, leads Jenny Lenny to the farm slash castle or whatever. I never quite figured out exactly where this location was. Aminette is scurrying around the walls like a hereditary lady or something. Mm -hmm. He gets nabbed by the police zombies and Aminette jumps on him and is like, Not finally. Here we go, big boy. (laughs) just envisioning nick nolte as the the mummy in this Uh, i'm gonna stab you good (laughs) and and so she kind of gropes him and is about to stab him and then she sees that the stone is not on the dagger that's not good right so she's distracted for a second and then nick fights some zombies and then jenny lenny gets the knife away from Aminette, and then they just steal a uh one of the police cars and drive off do i have all that chronology correct you know what it's close enough <laughs> it, does, it doesn't matter they, yeah because they 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 zoom away in this 
It's like a police car, ambulance. It's some sort of emergency vehicle. Nick stops and at first he, he kind of leaves Jenny Lenny behind, but then he stops and picks her up. And then she just lays into him about how, I can't believe you were going to leave me. She cuts her nagging short to give some more exposition because apparently the knights hid the dagger in the sanctuary of the church, but they removed the magical red stone that makes the whole thing work. And Aminette made the plane crash over England. <sighs> So she could get the dagger, which, in my opinion, was still pretty impressive. It would all be much cooler if we cared about any of these characters or anything that was happening. Like, uh, all of a sudden, zombies start attacking their car. Uh, it, it just feels burdensome. It, it's just tiring. Because I don't care. I don't believe for an instant either of these characters are in any real jeopardy. Because we're only, what, 40 minutes into the movie at this point. They're not going to die. So... This just, and, and the action scene isn't good enough to be thrilling of its own accord. So it's just a, a scene that means nothing and has no weight to it. Jenny Lenny tells Nick that Aminette is all in his head as they're racing around. And I feel that Jenny Lenny would make one hell of a crazy ex-girlfriend because she is a know-it-all. She's quick to nag. She appears to have a jealous streak. As they're escaping, Nick unconsciously drives the vehicle back to the church where Aminette is waiting for them. And you know what? Maybe if Jenny Lenny wasn't running her mouth so much, explaining all of her egg-headed facts and bitching at Nick, she would have noticed that they had turned the car around and gone back where they came from. He's the pilot. She's the navigator. Take responsibility for your role in this, Jenny Lenny. It's not all Nick's fault. You have some responsibility, too. Welcome back. <laughs> I knew you'd end up here. As they drive off, once they get to the church, they turn and they drive off in there. We get this recycled uh, truck sequence from Raiders of the Lost Ark because this movie has a penchant for ripping off countless other movies. Just do that. In this movie, we just swap out the Nazis for mummies or zombies or whatever. They come in through the windows and punch kapow. And then they come in through the windshield. Katoom kata. And you're just like, yeah, I, I kind of know how this is going to end. To your point, no one's going to die. We're way too early in the movie. And that's Tom Cruise in the lead. The ambulance crashes. Nick flies out of the car and boom, ba doom ba doom ba doom rolls down the hill. But he's okay. Don't worry. Jenny Lenny's wearing a seatbelt. She doesn't die. And she's okay. And then Aminette shows up and Nick goes after Aminette with this giant stick and she punches him so hard that he just like flies up in the air and crashes down. It looked like when Randall Tex Cobb punched H.I. McDonough during the final battle sequence of Raising Arizona where it's just off your feet into the air onto your back. I was just hoping that maybe she had had a grenade around her waist and he could hold up his pen in his hand and say, I'm sorry. Sorry, and we could wrap this movie up 60 minutes early. Alas, oh. did not happen. Nicolas Cage also, as the mummy, would have made this movie a, a million times better. After Aminette punches Tom Cruise cartoonishly with an uppercut, the only thing we're missing here is one of those bomb whistles as he falls. And <laughs> poof. She climbs on top of him. <laughs> here we go again. And... The then the mummy task force shows up. Uh-huh. They shoot her with harpoons and tranquilizers. Then Tom Cruise stands up and is like, hey, what the hell's going on here? And then they shoot him with a tranquilizer and he goes down like a sack of potatoes. Then we cut to the next part of the movie because we're done chasing Aminette around. Forget about all that stuff. And uh, basically all the zombie cops and whatnot. We'll pick that up, you know, in the third act. Nick is taken to Henry Jekyll. Th 
this is where oh chad it's getting good because we get some teases of the dark universe here we get we get some stuff for the fans as tom cruise is following henry jekyll through his laboratory we see that he's got some stuff in jars like the hand from the gill man from creature from the black lagoon huh huh you like that and then a jar with a vampire skull in it huh like dracula oh guys just just wait just wait this movie kind of sucks but look we got a gill man in a in a dracula it's gonna be okay everything's gonna be fine but you know the same kind of things happened in those marvel movies early on you know that they would sneak in a little thing a little here and a little thing there the fact that they're trying to follow in the footsteps of another franchise that did this so incredibly well it just feels a bit I mean, it's clearly repetitive, but it's just like, ah. It would be like if I watched the Chicago Bulls of the Jordan era play basketball and said, you know what? I think I know how to do that. Just because somebody did it and did it well doesn't mean you can do it. The thing that makes those Marvel movies fun for me, first of all, I'm a fan of the Marvel comics, but also they do that fan service right. Yes, there's stuff in the background, but a lot of times there are things that would never ever make it to a real movie. It's just that you're nudging your pal when you're watching the film. I'm like, Hey, look, it's they're referencing in an oblique way the Silver Surfer, and maybe years from now there'll be a Silver Surfer movie. This feels more like Justice League, or maybe uh, Batman versus Superman is a better example, where there's the computer disc with all the files of like, here's Wonder Woman, and here's Aquaman, and here's Cyborg. Who? Don't worry about it. It's more along those lines of like, let's just try to cram all this stuff into a movie to try to generate some excitement, as opposed to, you know what, we're going to make this movie and see how that goes okay that went well let's make another movie and start to tie this stuff together which is what marvel did like marvel had the patience to do it and the dark universe stuff just felt like if a cinematic universe is a prom the dark universe showed up at the door with a heart on and its hand down its pants like you know get in the car it's time to go to the prom <laughs> So Nick is taken into Henry's office where we learn that Henry, his full name is Dr. Henry Jekyll. What? I, I know. Who would have saw that coming? Henry tells Nick a story about some guy slash himself and how he had a condition that caused him to embrace chaos or something during his history. And during this conversation, Henry injects himself with medicine because it looks like he's going to full on Hulk out. I mean, hide out. And then Henry gets his shit under control and Nick is totally confused because at this point he's representing the point of view of the audience i don't know i mean there there really isn't an audience surrogate except for maybe jenny lenny we see that after you know jekyll shoots himself up with his anti-hide formula even though they play so coy with that like no one has ever heard the story of jekyll and hyde before he's like let me tell you a story about a man i have a friend <laughs> that has a problem where sometimes he turns into a hulking beast that likes to kill people. Now, this friend of mine needs this special syringe to shoot himself up. But it's totally not me. It's not me at all. <laughs> right? You're just like, this is 
why is this movie playing so goddamn coy with all this stuff it just it's obvious we know as the audience what is going on here just knock it off just get to the thing that we all came to see you don't have to pretend that oh no that this isn't really henry jekyll we're gonna do a little switcheroo on you or something but what's bullshit is they don't pay it off but i'll I'll bitch about that later henry takes nick in and shows him that Aminette is all tied up and here we learn that jenny lenny is working for henry and then nick yaks it up with Aminette about how he's the chosen one and he can become a living god and with the power of life over death and blah 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 and in another one of these dream sequences we see nick and he's going to get it on with Aminette, but jenny lenny is there to run everything by screeching wake up nick wake up jenny lenny then apologizes to nick for lying to him which one why would she do this she then tells nick that you know what you're a good man because You gave me the only parachute on the plane. And then Nick says, because he's an asshole, I thought there was another one. Granted, he did give her the first parachute, but he was like, yeah, there's another one for me. So he's like, what, a lukewarm asshole? I've got a couple of questions about this scene. Your Honor, if I may approach the bitch. First of all, in this scene, Aminette, when she's talking to Tom Cruise in his head, and she's like, hey, all this, all the shit that went down back in ancient Egypt, I just had to do that stuff, man. I was trying to give somebody eternal life. He would have thanked me for it. And when he's like, yeah, what about killing the kid and the the mother? And she says, that's different times. Is the way she describes it. It was different times. It's like, wait a second. First of all, how do you know that? Second of all, because you've been in modern times for all of, I don't know, 45 minutes. How do you know that times are all that different? Second of all, at no time in the history of anything has murdering a child been okay. You know, that's always been kind of taboo. Also, Your Honor, a few more questions. In addition to how would she know about these being different times, is Jekyll a villain in this scene? Is Aminette? Is Jenny Lenny? Who is the fuck? hero of this movie i ask you and like this is all preceding her saying you know nick there's a good man in you trying to get out but his response to that is nah i'm an asshole right like who cares who cares about any of these characters which is a major problem for me all throughout this movie is I don't care about any of these people. I don't know, aside from Jenny Lenny being a flunky of Dr. Jekyll's, I don't know what she really wants. Is she after the stone and dagger of Aminette, uh, like this thing being her life's work? Is her life's work the study of Egyptian antiquity? Is it finding the sources of evil along with Henry Jekyll? Is Henry Jekyll trying to stop evil or is he just trying to contain it? Because he seems instead of just destroying this mummy kind of what they do at the end of the movie spoilers he could do right now he just doesn't do it he just pumps her full of mercury just none of this makes any sense i don't understand who these people are and what they want and at this point in the movie that feels like a narrative problem we cut back to the knight's tomb from the beginning of the movie and it's all in disarray and there's a bunch of nameless hard hats running around and they find the missing gemstone that's needed for the dagger hidden in one of the burial plots put a pin in that then we cut back Jenny Lenny is talking to Aminette in some kind of mummy speak and Aminette starts yakking in English to her so they don't have to deal with as many subtitles because you know that the audience was like hey I came to a movie I didn't come here to read a book Right, the new editor of the film was like, are we using papyrus font all through this? That's stupid. Aminette tells Jenny Lenny that uh, what Jenny Lenny really wants to know is what happens when you die. And then Aminette says, like, you know, you're going to find out when I kill you. Which, like, wow, that cat's got claws. Um, (laughs) Which, 
which is what this character should have been all along the you know the Aminet character should constantly be like I'm gonna murder all of you I'm a force of ancient evil I don't care how much mercury you pump into me as soon as I get out of this I'm gonna kill all of you I'm gonna murder each and every one of you it's gonna be terrible in our next scene Henry gives Nick a stout drink because you know they're men's men he walks him to a world of gods and monsters which you idiot go fuck yourself the mummy do not, do not quote a far superior film, which by the way, Bride of Frankenstein, cool hour 17. I want to point out that Russell Crowe in this movie, who plays Henry, is two years younger than Tom Cruise, and he clearly looks like he is 47 years older than him. Yeah, I can't remember who pointed it out, but somebody points out that he refers to Tom Cruise as a young man in this scene. No. In this scene, Nick, the elder statesman, the man of wisdom, like the grounding voice of experience and reason. In Tom Cruise's Nick, he's he's actually this undisciplined wild card that's having to be taught the ways of this unpredictable world. Here, Henry starts laying some monster nonsense on him while Aminette starts talking talking to some crawling bugs. Nick tells Henry that he's game for getting this curse off of him because who wouldn't be down for getting a curse taken off of you? Depends on what the curse is. What if the curse is ice cream every day? Oh, that would be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, that's a monkey's paw wish. You know, like you could probably get away. Like ain't nobody coming back from the dead on that one. You're just like, I wish I had a bowl of ice cream every day. I've thought about that curse from Stephen King's Thinner, where the guy gets skinnier and skinnier, and you're like, oh, that would be awful, you know, as much as he ate. What if just, or like, what if it was like fatter, if that was your curse, or shorter, or taller? What if a gypsy cursed you with taller, and every day you just kept getting bigger and bigger? And right until you ran out of oxygen in the stratosphere or whatever? I guess so. Henry explains that, that these cursed things are kind of complex and that they require sacrifices to be made. And then one of Henry's henchmen comes in to inform him that the gemstone was found. Hooray! And then Jenny Lenny strolls in and asks Henry if he's going to kill Nick. And Nick is just like, whoa, 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 what? We had 15 seconds of sex with my clearly freakishly small penis. Like, I thought we had something here. That, wait, what did you say about your penis? <laughs> nothing, nothing. It's cool. It's cool, Elminette. I thought I heard micro-penis. That's not going to work for me for eternity. At the same time, Henry's anti-Jekyll-to-Hyde serum is wearing off, which didn't he just pump himself full of this maybe, what, 15 minutes ago? Yeah, there's no rhyme or reason to when and how he turns into Hyde. And also, when he turns into Hyde, let's just get to it. Who cares? This is the stupidest like transformation sequence i've seen outside that shitty wolfman remake all that happens is he gets a little veiny and he starts talking like dick van dyke uh when he's a chimney sweep oi governor i'm a villain now he's not full-on hide he starts just like beating the shit out of nick inside this sort of metal office chamber that he works in and then when he does go full-on hide i guess it just looks like what i imagine russell crow looking like when he wakes up after a night of heavy drinking or as he calls it waking up there's no real physical transformation his eyes just kind of go bloodshot and that's it he just looks like he's fucked up drunk yeah it doesn't help that russell crow in this movie has the kind of pudginess i associate with a couple of scotches a night followed by a couple of choice bacon cheeseburgers and then like you said he gets kind of bleary eyed like he's got a couple of them like i'll tell you something hey hey nick 
sit down. I'm going to tell you all about me time on the sea as a merchant marine. It's like, no. What do you say to me? And then, <laughs> it's just two old men punching each other in a way that makes me feel kind of sad for both of them. Less so for Russell Crowe, because Russell Crowe is kind of owning it. Like, you feel like after this scene was over, he just scratched his balls and was like, oh, that was pretty fun. <laughs> and Tom Cruise was like, no, let's do it again. Russell, I need you to bring the intensity. How about you lick my intensity, Tom? How about that? Huh? Hey, how about, how about you get a taste of me own-eyed? Huh? Um, <laughs> but... The Mr. Hyde in this, at the very least in that shitty Van Helsing movie, Mr. Hyde actually was like a big Hulk, like this big misshapen beast. Which it should be. Right. In this, he just looks, or he sounds a little more uneducated and is also like trying to convince Tom Cruise to become the living embodiment of Seth. And so he can be his flunky. He's like, hey, you know, how about setting in Hyde, taking on the world, eh? That sounds like a right bit of fun. And you're just like, ah, this is stupid. (laughs) Jenny tries to intervene. And then Henry's number one henchman tries to intervene. I don't know why. But down below, while these two old men are beating the shit out of each other, Aminette is gaining strength. She's eventually going to escape, but not after puking up like a couple of gallons of mercury. So we cut back to Nick and Hyde, and they're doing these WWE moves. Jenny clocks the number one henchman in the head with the Book of the Dead from the Brendan Fraser movie. So that's fun. Did everyone see that we have the book from the old mummy movies by the old ones i mean the ones that came out in the 90s right the the ones that are at least a little bit fun with a charming character like say what you will about those movies the main character is a lovable rogue and actually gets away with being a lovable rogue instead of whatever the fuck tom cruise is supposed to be in this movie like brendan fraser has that kind of easy charm that makes the stuff he does acceptable and palatable whereas everything that tom cruise does in this movie makes you think i bet this guy has sold a human into bondage at some point i'm going to contradict myself here as i want to do but i think that there comes a certain point in actors careers where seeing them perform stunts and feats of action and adventure becomes more about serious concern regarding their physical harm and less about the peril of watching our hero achieve this accomplishment. You know, like in watching this, you're like, oh my God, he might hurt himself (laughs) as opposed to, I hope he survives. He's going to break a hip. If he slips and falls, he's going to be in intensive care for a long, long time. Tom Cruise is about three years away from those Harrison Ford set stories where it's like Harrison Ford just literally got out of his chair and his shin snapped in half. He is that old. And Tom Cruise, no matter how many oxygen chambers or whatever the fuck he sleeps in, at some point the ravages of time will catch up with him. And you're right, though. Watching this scene in particular of Russell Crowe manhandling Tom Cruise a little bit, it was like, yeah, these are, I was going to say, actors in great shape <laughs> there's one actor in great shape and another actor who is just fighting off the ravages of time with you know scotch and medium rare steaks with butter just heaped on top of them <laughs> strapping on boxing gloves like 1920s era boxing gloves and daring the grim reaper to take him like, oh oi come on huh you want a piece of crow? Oh, huh? and Tom Tom Cruise, of course, you know, doing a million 
crunches a day or whatever it is one of those things like if you put liam neeson in this scene it would be a perfect trifecta of actors that i'm starting to worry about a little bit jenny and nick scramble to find an exit to get the hell out of this place and Aminette speaks some incantation mumbo jumbo and asks the god of death to bring forth her chosen and she summons the sands of egypt that's fun which uh, again is a reminder of oh yeah that brendan fraser movie even though the cgi is kind of shitty now that was still kind of neat because the sandstorm happened more than once in the movie and it was sort of how the mummy got around yeah we we didn't talk about it earlier but they already tipped their hat to that shit when the helicopter was dragging that sarcophagus through the air once Aminette summons the sands of time essentially glass because again fun fact glass is made of sand um glass all across <laughs> England explodes as Nick and Jenny escape the museum. This museum that they're running through, which first off, I guess that Henry's, I don't know, hidden lair is below a museum or something. It is full of people. I cannot begin to imagine the carnage that this shattered glass bomb going off in this building produced it is almost unimaginable just the spraying of shards of broken glass flying through the air in this museum hacking up the skin of nerds and old people as they read placards on exhibits that nobody gives a shit about is almost unimaginable when there was no crawdads we ran from sand you ran from what we ran from sand. Henry's right-hand man calls down to his contact in the subway tunnels to say that Aminette is on the way and that they should secure the stone. So what do they do? They put it in this little metal box, which honestly did not look too secure to me. You know, it looked like something that like you would maybe hide your weed in. It, it's a half step away from like that stylish European tin cigarette case that you found in your grandfather's attic, that kind of thing. Um, you think there's going to be something good in you open it and you're just like... Oh, a lighter. A purple heart. Fuck you, Grandpa. <laughs> we come back to Nick and Jenny running through the streets of London, where a massive sandstorm with a face on it is roaring through the streets, exploding every window on every skyscraper in one of the largest cities in the world. This makes 9-11 look like two for Tuesdays at a TGI Fridays. There are cars and double-decker buses exploding through the streets, and then Nick sees his buddy Vale, Remember that ghostly jackass? He's in the street telling him to get in the subway tunnels to go get the gemstone. Well, because the plan is uh, Jenny Lenny has a plan, which no one seemed to think of before, which is, hey, what if we just break this stone and that way they can never use it to stab Tom Cruise and make him the embodiment of set? And also another thing I would like to point out for the jury's deliberations on this film, I wonder how much discussion went into Aminette's wardrobe in this movie because she's all kind of bandaged up, but it, it's just enough to hide her nipples, you know? It, it's one of those things where, like, there's a bandage under her boob and there's a bandage right across her boob, but that's kind of it. Like, they make this the sexiest mummy possible without showing some vag and nipple. And you're just like, man, I don't know that this is the movie I want to see. I don't need my mummy to be sexy. The mummy should be scary. Heck. I can barely see those nipples. And I was looking. <laughs> right. He was looking. You heard him. He was really looking. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's that kind of thing of like, wh why are we doing sexy mummy? Who thought this was a great idea? I mean, Alex Kurtzman was the one who cast Sevilla Butella, but I wonder if this was in the script originally of like, hey, what if it's the mummy, but she's kind of hot? <laughs> 
That I'm a mummy that likes to get down. Look at my nipples. <laughs> they are so hard, even in a sandstorm. In the next sequence, we see Nick and Jenny Lenny running through London as it is being destroyed. And for me, it really exemplifies what is wrong with big CGI-infused films. The whole scene is huge and loud, and it looks great, but there's part of you that knows this is all fake. In my opinion, this is in part reflected by how the actors respond to what's going on around them. In the filming of this, there's someone on the soundstage with blowing fans, and they're on a green screen, and they're reacting acting to direction of what will eventually be, you know, added during post-production. But even with the actor's best intentions, they can't fake natural human responses of real external stimuli. You know, be that a giant sandstorm or exploding windows or a car crashing, this is total fucking chaos. And what they're doing is look to the left, look to the right, Look surprised. That's not how you would respond. I mean, it would be true just pants shitting of like, oh my fucking God, I can't believe this is happening as opposed to... Right. This is the end of the earth. Yeah. The world as I know it it has descended into apocalypse. And so it's just like, whoa. Another reaction that really bothers me uh, in movies is from Twister when they see the cow flying through the air and somebody's like, oh, we got cows. And you're like, if you saw that, you would stop the truck, throw it into reverse and get the fuck out of there. Because as soon as like a two ton cow is being tossed around by the wind, you are no longer in control of things. If I saw a cow flying through the air, I wouldn't be like, we got cows. I'd be like, holy fuck. Like, what? Oh my shit. Did you guys fucking see that? I mean, right. it would it would just be a barrage of profanity with the word cow used as a bovine conjunction. <laughs> right. The the Yeah, and and that's the reaction that you want out of these characters in this moment as the world around them is exploding. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise's dead buddy is like, no, no, no. Come get in the sewers. It's safer in here. Like your mind would crack in half at that point. You would just, you would be a gibbering mess drooling on yourself in the street until whatever fate came to claim you. So after this big ass sandstorm, Aminette is down in the subway tunnels. And then we see Nick in the subway tunnels and he's there with his ghost buddy Vale. And Vale says he's going to deliver Nick to Aminette and his work will be done. Which, hold on, wait a minute. Wasn't Nick just with Jenny Lenny running away from a sandstorm? Oh, wait. Wait, she's climbing down a ladder somewhere else into the sand tunnels. How did they get separated? You know what? He asked too many questions. Just pay attention. It's a fun movie. All right. Don't worry. Jenny Lenny will catch up later. Meanwhile, Aminette has uh, resurrected a bunch of Crusader soldiers. Even though she didn't touch them. I don't know what the fuck power this is. Because she didn't suck any of their essences. I guess she just has control over dead people in general. Which, if you're going to do a bunch of Crusaders, why not do everybody? Why not turn it into a big George Romero movie? Who knows who cares? So, she gets all the Crusaders to rise from the dead and go after all the guards who, you know, have their Scooby-Doo lunchbox with the stone in it. Tom Cruise ends up fighting some skeletons because who cares? It's just a bunch of nonsense. Like, all of this movie, what it reminded me of as much as anything is the end of the Suicide Squad movie, where by the end of it, you don't know what
what's going on, who the characters are, why anyone's doing anything. Like the motivation is just so hazy and done with. There is no reason for Nick to want to be down here. Why doesn't he just get as far away from Amonet as he possibly can? He has no vested interest in this. There is no reason for him to confront her. Aside from, hey, we're going to get the stone and try to destroy it. Great. How about you go to some authorities? Aren't you in the army? Remember when that happened earlier in the movie when he was in the military? Why not go to the nearest military base and be like, hey, I know I've been AWOL for a, a couple of days having this crazy mummy adventure, but here's what's happening and we need tanks. Sorry. I'm upset. I think the only reason he was even in the military in this script is they had to come up with a plot device to blow a hole in the ground. It just never matters. Like, it, whatever military he's in, it's not any organized military that I've seen in any other movie. They just kind of give him free reign, but it, they're fighting a bunch of skeletons and Aminette gets a hold of the stone and puts it on her knife. Then we decide to fight skeletons in water now because the part of the tomb was submerged for no good reason other than just to have some skeletons in water. Then Aminette shows up in the water and grabs Jenny Lenny and takes her off because uh, the mummy lady can swim like the man from Atlantis, which is to say really fast and with a wonderful head of hair. Once Jenny Lenny is stolen away by the mermaid mummy, Aminette, Nick swims around underwater looking for Jenny Lenny and then he finds her body, which is dead, floating in the water, but not before escaping in this slow motion chase underwater sequence with an aquatic horde of mummies coming after him. It sounds way more exciting than it is. It's really boring and the water mummies pull Nick up out of the water who is latched on to Jenny Lenny's lifeless body and he gets a few waxing on the mummies, what brought him there for good measure. And then Aminette comes walking down the steps and tells Nick that Jenny Lenny, she was doomed from the get-go. So, you know, just... Yeah, no chance. Then all of the the army of mummies just disappear into sand or ashes. And then Aminette says, there are worse fates than death and tells Nick to come to me. Right. She keeps asking him to give herself or give himself to her as if that's a thing that was happening. Like, is that a thing? I guess. Let me just say, after she says this, Nick runs over to her in an aggressive way and she fucking slaps him down. She throws him around like a rag doll bouncing him all over the stone burial vaults. I have a few questions for the jury again. In this scene, as we prepare to wrap up the the big adventure with Aminette, why does Nick never use the fact that he's, quote, the chosen one as any kind of leverage? This character doesn't ever do anything in this movie. I think the answer is obvious is that he's just a dumb-dumb. Right. This is that, uh, speaking of Indiana Jones, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark scenario where the events of the movie would continue to proceed just as they do in the film with or without Indiana Jones in it. And the same thing is true of this movie because all that Nick does is he accidentally finds the tomb which you know is is because his buddy calls in an airstrike he doesn't do that aside from leading him to the source of this he doesn't crash the plane he doesn't come up with any plan to save himself or the world he's just going along with what jenny lenny says he gets his ass kicked by Aminette. the only thing that he actively does to progress the story or indeed his character in the movie happens at the end of this scene and then that's it he does exactly one thing in this movie and he's the hero that is 
awful writing. I wouldn't call him the hero. I would say he's the accidental main character. I guess, but even then you would expect him to do something, you know, like he would be the one pushing the narrative forward somehow. And he's just dragged along in the movie instead of actually propelling anything. He has this dumb line in in the scene that I really hate where, you know, when Aminette is like, give yourself to me. And he's like, look, this is just never going to work out. And it's not me. It's you. And you're just like, God, just shut up, movie. I hate everything about this. I want the whole thing to be quiet. I, th- this is truly the old man reaction to this movie of just like, get the fuck off my lawn and shut up. So in the finale of this movie, which I think that's where we are now, you have a male, let's call him hero, fighting a villain that is a female. And there's always an awkwardness that accompanies that where you have a male character that's on the side of righteousness beating up a female character that is on the side of no goodery. I mean, normally in that situation, what you do is you have a proxy. You bring in another female character to beat the shit out of the woman. Because, again, unless you're Ike Turner, you are not down with beating the shit out of women. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say about the movie is they didn't make her a lesbian. That is the only other way to to be a little more stereotypical about it. It just would be better if she were more threatening. I mean, yeah, she bounces them around the room a little bit in a reverse eye, uh, which is what that's called. <laughs> but aside from that, she is sympathetic enough in terms of like, oh, she was going to become the queen of Egypt and this was all stolen away from from her because of patriarchy. That's kind of understandable. Like that makes her a little bit more heroic than anything that Nick does in this movie. So, which goes back to the question of, is she really the villain of the film? Because if she is, she needs to be the villain like, like we were talking about earlier when she says to jenny lenny that yeah i'm about to kill you you'll find out what death is like then that should be the villain you know she should be telling everybody that gets it within five feet of her i'm gonna kill you and then does and instead all she does is suck the soul out of a couple of cops and there's and go, again going back to the problem with you know what if she fulfills this uh prophecy or whatever then so what about that what happens if she does unleash set upon the world like what does the world after that look like you know even if we got we do so many flashbacks and flash sideways in this movie why not do one quick flash forward where tom cruise gets a vision of the hellish world that would be unleashed if set was given human form that would at least be some reason to want to kill Aminette. i don't know maybe i'm asking too many questions it's never clarified going back to the scene you mentioned a couple minutes ago where nick you know does the it's not you it's me to Aminette. in this scene Aminette is now holding the dagger with the red stone on top and things are getting really interesting and then Aminette throws Nick across the room for the final time and then she looks down and realizes somehow Nick has pickpocketed the dagger from my hand without me knowing just to labor the point she had a dagger in her hand she's holding Nick up in the air with her other hand 
by his throat. Somehow he was able to deftly remove said dagger from noted firsthand without Aminet knowing. That's just stupid. Or if they, because if he's such a thief, you know, a grand thief, uh, instead of just some soldier who, much like in the film Three Kings, just decides to exploit the the native culture and appropriate their wealth for his own, uh, which does not make him a hero by any stretch. If he had been legitimately a good thief and you saw him doing thief shit in this movie, that would make some kind of sense. But again, this movie just doesn't bother to do any of that stuff. It's just like, oh, what, well, whatever is convenient for the script in the moment is what the movie does. It doesn't set any of it up. It just pays it off. It's like finding, uh, you know, semen on the bus seat. You don't know what led to this. You just know you got to deal with it now. What the fuck buses are you on? When was the last time you were on a bus, Chad? Well, it was a school bus. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> all these buses these days come come pre-semened as soon as the driver fires them up in the morning it's like oh god damn it i gotta go jerk off on the seat well let's warm up the seats so nick gets the dagger with the stone and then he decides to smash 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 the stone and then Aminet says if you do this all is lost uh if you don't destroy it you can become a living god you'll have the power of life over death the camera holds on nick's face and you see him thinking about this. And as he glances over at Jenny Lenny, who is dead from being drowned underwater, and he's looking at Aminette, and he looks at Jenny Lenny, and he's thinking, you know, if I have power of life over death, and Jenny Lenny is dead, and I have power of life over death. Right. It's a, it's a real, you can be set. Jenny is dead. You can be set. Jenny is dead. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Somehow Dental plan. Yeah. yeah, it's totally that. I'm like, you can see the, the light come on behind <laughs> Nick's stupid eyes when he's like, wait a second. If I have life over that and Jenny Lenny is dead, then hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> and Aminette is just like, Matt, you're almost there. Take it through. If I have life over death, then I could bring Jenny Lenny back from that from so close that from the God. You almost got it. Bring her back from what rhymes with breath. <laughs> <laughs> It's so stupid. Right. Bingo. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is just the dumbest. And finally he's like, wait a second. You know, it's a real... <laughs> you'll have the power over life and death. It is? Uh, he ends up stabbing himself and is cursed to rewatch this movie, apparently. <laughs> where all of a sudden he gets flashes of shit we've already seen. One of my least favorite things in movies where somebody flashes back to stuff we saw like 20 minutes ago. It's like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. You don't have to tell me movie. But Nick is so stupid, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, she died. That's why I stabbed myself. So his eyes split uh, all, all mummy-like. And then he drops the knife and the stone shatters. Aminette is like, 
Oh, here we go. Let's start ruling the world. You're set now. And then he he life forces her, or Starman's her, until she's like this withered hag that can't move, which isn't what happened to the cops, so apparently he, he super Starman's her. He, he makes a monster face, and Jenny wakes up. Then she's like, Nick, you saved my life. You're an actual hero. And he's just like hovering off camera a little bit, or like in the, in the shadows. And he's like, nah, don't come near me. Because <laughs> he's a monster now. <laughs> and she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, I'm a monster. And <laughs> some guards start showing up. Jenny Lenny is like, hey, don't don't kill him. He's okay. But meanwhile, he's just fucked off. And, you know, it's like, oh, he saved us. But also, he's a monster. And then we get some stupid voiceover, a conversation between Jenny Lenny and Dr. Jekyll about, well, you know, he's... It, uh, God, it's just a line I hate so much where he's like, sometimes you might need a monster to fight a monster. And you're just like, ugh, I get it, movie. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the worst and she's like yeah but he's out there and, and you know we need to help him and he's like well he's possessed by ancient evil and who knows which side will win the good or the darkness and it, we may call upon him one day but probably not um <laughs> now the way this movie performed so then we're back in egypt i guess or somewhere in nevada maybe I don't, somewhere with sand his pal is like hey thanks for bringing me back to life i don't know where you found my body or whatever but thanks for doing that i guess but also you have now forced me to hang out with you until you just like i guess every time i die you're just gonna bring me back so you can have a pal that's a real fucked up thing to do to a friend if that's what he is you know that would be like if i died in a car accident or something and you found some eldritch tome to bring me back to life but you only did it so that like we could watch cops together and i was like i was bored man <laughs> what do you mean right you wanted to spend all eternity in the afterlife come on there's a lot of good shit on my dvr <laughs> right hey like i i was kind of thinking since i've got eternal life maybe i'd i'd you know meet a nice lady or maybe just go play some putt-putt or something like fuck you you're going to sit right here and you're going to watch cops until your your resurrected Lazarus ass can't do anything but sing the theme to cops over and over in your head and you go slowly crazy. It's just a jacked up thing to do to somebody. And yeah, and then as they ride off, there there's a bit where Tom Cruise is like, you know, hey, where's your sense of adventure? Um, which is what he says earlier in the movie to this guy after he cuts his water. In this case, it's just like, I've doomed you for eternity. That's a pretty good gag, don't you think? I really got one over on you. I have the power of life and death and apparently laughter. They, they're they riding off together and behind Tom Cruise's horse, it's just a wall of sand because apparently one of his super mummy powers is the power of sandstorms. But you don't really get any idea of like, well, what can he do now? Yes, he has the power of life and death, but... He brought his buddy back to life and he brought Jenny Lenny back to life. And is that it? Is that what he can do is make a monster face? Which, by the way, I don't want to undersell how shitty that monster face looks, too. It's like it is a half step away from the, the large Marge reveal <laughs> from Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> 
but yeah and then that's it that's the the end of the mummy where they don't do any you know tag on the on the credit scene or anything because they've they've teased enough of what the dark universe is going to be but that's it and then you know tom cruise rides off into the desert with his doomed friend and credits it is not a good movie it's terrible man i found myself trying to care about this movie so much because I, i'm predisposed to liking stuff like this like i like a monster movie even when it's kind of dopey like i said i like those brendan Fraser mummy movies are the first one for sure you know what i recall of it i it they're not great but they're at least fun if i told you that this summer that the bride of frankenstein as part of the dark universe was coming out and that tom cruise would be in it and a smattering of Ginny Lenny and Vale and um, drunken Henry Jekyll's going to show up. Like if that was, isn't there part of you that would be interested in seeing that just as a, a part two to this messed up mishmash of what did I just watch? I don't know enough to go to the theater for it because it just sounds so terrible because the Bride of Frankenstein isn't a monster. Like the Bride of Frankenstein, we'll get to it later, but in Bride of Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein is not in the movie that much. You know, like that character isn't heroic or anything. It's really about the monster trying to get a little a little tail. Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein is basically Frankenstein part two and at the very, very end, we have a bride, but not for very long. Right. It's, it's much more about, like, Dr. Pretorius and his manipulation of, of Dr. Frankenstein and the monster and that kind of thing. It's a great movie. Don't get me wrong. Bride of Frankenstein is, is one of the best of the classic films. But there's nothing about it that lends itself. Like, if Angelina Jolie was the rumor, like, she's going to be the bride. It's like, so what? Like, is she going to be a superhero? Is, she, or is the Bride of Frankenstein going to be all bandaged up like Elsa Lancaster, only she She's jumping around like all superhero like the whole idea is stupid like I, and I've said it before but the whole idea of this whole dark universe thing is just wrong-headed the idea of making monsters the heroes misses the point of what made those movies good you can have sympathetic monsters like Frankenstein's monster but at the end of the day the monster has to be destroyed because it's a monster it kills people that's why it's a fucking monster oh one thing we left out of the end of this is that they just put the withered Sophia Boutella in a sarcophagus and and fill it with mercury and sink it it's like i guess she could come back but kind of what for that's the game that i try to play with myself with this movie is what would the sequel to this be like is it oh there's an even worse monster and now tom cruise as this embodiment of set has to fight that but has to pull sophia butella out of you know mothballs mercury balls to <laughs> mercury balls i had a case of those one time um but has to pull her out of the mercury to get training to be a better monster or something like all of that sounds stupid i just can't think and, and if you told me like oh it's gonna be bride of frankenstein and dr jekyll's gonna be in it and so is tom cruise as the mummy character it's like i don't know how that could be good yes i'm curious about watching it in the same way that i slow down when i see a car accident <laughs> i don't have any belief that it would be good you know unlike a top chef scenario where it's like hey we're gonna give you some unusual ingredients uh and you have to make the best meal out of it imagine if those were ingredients were like a dog turd some shaved glass <laughs> and somehow a liquid fart and <laughs> and you had to turn that into something palatable and it's just impossible. Like, the ingredients are all wrong. You can't make this good. It's poorly cast. The effects aren't very good. None of it 
means anything like there's a, no emotional or narrative weight to anything it's just a real nothing of a movie an inept nothing of a movie like there are some movies you see that are kind of cotton candy films i like to i like to think of them as where they're perfectly palatable going down they don't stick with you for very long but they're entertaining enough uh like uh, the kingsman movies i think are kind of like that i don't think they're great movies but they're 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 quick they're action-packed there's some good camera work stuff like that there's a couple of laughs and at the end of it, it's like oh, i don't care if i ever see that again but i had a, a good afternoon watching that movie this isn't even that it's just bad sorry I was on a rant there. I agree. It's not good, but there's part of me that's just like, should you see it? Like, I don't, I don't care. (laughs) Like, should you not see it? Like, no, I'm thinking about watching it. All right. Let me know what you thought. Like, it's, it's a terrible movie. Yes. But I have a soft spot for just really shitty, bad movies. I mean, you have arguably one of the biggest movie stars ever, you know, in this grandiose, epic Genesis point of this idea of a cinematic universe and it just shits the bed like absolutely you should see this movie it's got a great plane crash sequence it's no better no worse than the majority of the bullshit you see out there i've seen the majority of the movies that star that star dwayne the rock johnson and those are just awful they're just as bad as this piece of shit I would rather watch the movie Rampage again. Uh, I would rather watch that again than watch this again. I flip a coin. Whatever one's, of whichever one's starting sooner, I'd watch either one. But Rampage at least has a giant monkey. That gives the finger to people. <laughs> and pretends to be dead. You know what? You got it. <laughs> yeah. So we're at the halfway point. And we've dealt with the original three, or at least the big three, of the Universal monster movies. And I think after we get over the hump, we're going to start to deal with films that really begin to focus more on the special effects capabilities of cinema during the time in which they were made. And for our next episode, we are going to be taking a look at a contemporary remake of The Invisible Man, um, specifically We will be looking at Memoirs of an Invisible Man, starring Chevy Chase and directed by... Uh, The greatest horror director of all time, John Carpenter. Indeed. Um, It also stars Daryl Hannah, as well as... Sam Neill as the, the, the heavy, the villain of the film. Sam Neill's a good villain. We invite you to come back next week as we will be looking at a special effects extravaganza that will find ways to make a group of actors react to another actor who's not on stage as an homage to a movie that was filled with special effects where a group of actors responding to an actor who's not on stage using special effects to make him look like he's not there. And the big question will be Claude Rains or Chevy Chase? Who's the bigger jerk? Let's leave it at that. So thank you so much for for joining us. As always, drop us a line. You can find us at pick6movies.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Send us an email, pick6movies at gmail.com. You know how the internet works. We're around. And uh, we really appreciate it. Bo, any final thoughts as it relates to The Mummy? You know, don't ever watch this, regardless of what we've said and the, and the good time we've had talking about it tonight. Go watch that Christopher Lee version of The Mummy. It's actually a pretty pretty good gothic horror film. We'll see you in one week's time. And we'll see you at the Invisible Movies. <laughs>